The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Winemakers. This is uh, Brian Casey. I'm here with Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen. We got Ian Blessing uh, from the French Laundry today, and our special guest Jeff Bunchu from Gunlock Bunchu. Sort of uh, Gun Bun. Right. Gun you guys. <laughs> it is allergy season. <laughs> and Jeff, we got a ton of questions for you. We're. I think there's. There's there's not a lot of uh, wineries when in this you valley that invented uh, the wine business, right? <laughs> you know, it's, isn't it uh, Buena Vista and Gunlock Bunchu? We're talking about the two uh, oldest established wineries here in Sonoma Valley. Yep, uh, 1858 was when uh, when we took title to the property that we're still on in the same family. So, and, and Buena Vista was just a year before that. Right, 1858. What were you guys doing in 1858? Uh, I think my relatives were definitely still in their countries of origin in 1858. Yeah, mine, mine yeah. were all still in their countries of origin. Also. Italy, Germany, France, uh, Switzerland, and Russia, probably, where I was in 1858 in various pieces. <laughs> well, and Jacob Gunlock, so why Sonoma? You know, he, uh, it's, it's funny you guys are saying that because we just got uh, we finished with this family project that's translating a diary that he kept from the day that he left wow. Germany, or what is now Germany, it wasn't Germany then, to, to, to the day he came into San Francisco and a few weeks thereafter, a year to the date later. Um, and it took him a year to get from... It took him a year. He got yeah. shipwrecked off the Cape Verde Islands, and then he was stuck in... in in uh, Rio de Janeiro, waiting for transport. I can think of worse places. I mean, actually, um, maybe 1850s. Rio no, de he, you know, the place you want to be. The irony, the funny thing is, is he's, he's he had like five months in Rio de Janeiro, and he would do the same thing every day, and that involved that included a four o'clock arrival at the only German pub in the whole city, where he would just stay the rest of the night with his guitar. <laughs> so, and a wow. stein of beer that uh, never got empty. Yeah, but what was interesting about the diary is you sort of learned that he was, you know, it was. It sounds long ago, and it sounds like it might have been the dark ages. But it, everything about the diary and the translation we got is has a lot of contextual information around it. Just shows you how common it was. You said your ancestor Sam. It's right. um, when he he makes a comment when he lands in the port. So he he gets in Rio de Janeiro. He goes a, around the Cape. Uh, in, around basically South America, and as he's coming up, the ship has to stop in Valparaiso, Chile, the, the port on that side. There are 200 other boats in, in that little... Wow. Du- and, and this is in 1850, 1850, not even 1858. 200 other boats full of either coming and going, because that was before there was a canal or a way across Panama. Right. Um, but he, he came because he was the fourth son in a family that was w- well enough off to be educated and actually be in the wine and hospitality business but he in was Germany. in Germany in Germany but he was the youngest and so he didn't have in, the family didn't have anything to pass on to him uh, except sort of ambition and an education and so he was a little bit older than most he came with a, essentially a couple barrels of 
like fortified wine and a bunch of stuff so he could get started. Um, but he, he, he came because he thought the gold rush was something to, 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 to follow. But soon after getting here, realized that he kind of missed the boat and fell back on what his, what his ancestry was. He, he's actually worked. If you go back into Europe, thanks to the work of these two German scholars that have been studying our family, we're like 10th and 11th generation vintners between Gunlock wow. and Bunchu. Wow. That is, you know, good for cocktail parties uh, right. <laughs> or podcasts, yeah, right. you know. <laughs> and picking up chicks. Yeah, you know, yeah, right. Well, so they take over, he takes over Rhine at Farm, German right? And it's called Rhine Farm at the time? Well, what he does is... German he, hospitality. He, he, he sets up a brewery in San Francisco, and he's here, you know, for six, seven years before he makes a move up to Sonoma to buy the property. He makes sells enough beer to go back to... Europe in 1854 and pick up a bunch of rootstock oh, wow. and pick up a wife whose whose father didn't allow her to marry him before he left. But clearly, your prospects must have dimmed in his <laughs> in the four years that he was there. Beer was really yeah, good. exactly <laughs> right. So then he uh, he came back. Um, you know, he came back with a wife and and all this rootstock and bought the property called that and named it Ryan Farm. Mm-hmm. And um, and that must have been like a year and a half process, right? Yeah, you know, to leave. Gather, find a wife, and come back. Well, it's amazing that it sounds, you know, it sounds so amazingly hard, uh, but it's basically what everybody kind of did. Right. You know, well, you know, the train had just started by then. Yeah. So you know, right. maybe he trained back to. I mean, none. The, it well, was the it Wild just, West. No matter what, no matter how you look at it, San Francisco, Sonoma in the 1850s was the Wild West. I mean. Absolutely, it, it yeah. was. But what's interesting is that we, we had this. We because our family until the 1906 earthquake, the whole winery and the business, everything except the actual vineyard was in San Francisco. And will you talk about that? Because I think that's so interesting. People don't realize, you know, present day, everyone's got their own facility on property. But but in that time, people would. What would you do? You'd pick grapes here, and then they'd basically be be. Essentially, uh, they wouldn't be fermented, but they'd be they they well in the red grapes they would be fermented. Depends on what the wine was, but ultimately the must or the finished juice would not pre-ferment, but uh, you know basically, but post skin separation would be shipped down to San Francisco where the where the big wine business was by barge on Sonoma Creek. If you can gather, no if you know what that is, yeah. and there were four big wineries in san francisco in the late 1800s the only one whose name you would know now is almaden and that name's long gone but that was one of them there was like the franco-american wine company and there was another one and they were all you know big sort of industrial winemaking facilities and most of them like we did did some still wine but a lot of fortified wine because because of the transport the still wine that we enjoy today couldn't survive it so there was a lot of brandy and sherry being made uh but the earthquake that came didn't destroy that neighborhood the neighborhood where all this was done was on bryant street in downtown in what's now downtown san francisco yeah Yeah. and there were these four big wine companies and the earthquake didn't do them in but the fire afterwards because all the did all the water mains broke and that's what really devastated the city but before that fire the business was really done in san francisco with with like a there was a family there was a caretaker cousin that lived on the property to help farm it. And then there was essentially the, at that time, see, Jacob took on a, a, an employee who became his partner and son-in-law. That was Charles Bunchu in the 1870s. 
And then together they built it so that by the time Jacob died, he had a pretty storied life. In 1896, he had a bunch of kids, had a nice little house up on Rhine Farm here, had his house in, in San Francisco. His daughter was married to his business partner, and the business was doing well, but the earthquake kind of changed all that a few years later. Wow. And so then how, how to recover after that? Well, it's funny that you say that because um, it took... It was a super hard time. Uh, Charles Bunch, who wrote this letter, uh, that so they lived on Telegraph Hill, uh, yeah. and they had a view. The, the depictions of the view they had were basically what would be now Golden Gate to Bay Bridge. And he, you know, they were kind of bit. I, I don't know about big wigs, but they were clearly established in the city. So he was the last one on one of the last boats to go to Marin, and he and he watched the whole of Telegraph Hill, including his house and his two sons' house, burn when he showed up at a cousin's house in Marin, and he wrote, writes this letter that's like single space, three pages, and he was kind of a, a blowhard like the rest of his, his uh, <laughs> descendants are. So it's are. a family tradition. <laughs> exactly. So he wrote this long letter, but man, was it dramatic and reflective of why, at that point, he's an older man. Family tradition. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he, he writes this letter that like describes what it's like to watch his, his family and his life's work burn, and, you know, he never, he died a few years later, and it took a while because obviously there was nothing left in San Francisco. Um, the, 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 fam, the remaining family moved up to Sonoma into what was kind of a, a, a summer house. They tried to get the winery going, and, you know, there was some issues, and ultimately Prohibition came along and kind of knocked them down again. But that letter was very critical because as I came into the business in the, in the early 90s, and I was, you know, I was as horrified... Can we swear in this yep. podcast? I was as fuck horrified yeah. as fucking the heritage up as I was worried about making a good business out of it. Um, and so I really immersed myself in our history. And uh, and that letter, I, I mean, I remember that letter, you know, from reading it as a 22-year-old because it sort of influenced the way my grandfather and my dad and then ultimately I approached the business, which is make sure you get up every single day and enjoy exactly what you're doing. And that means that, uh, and as the sort of leader of the business, that means you you get to change the business to be more like what you want to get up doing. As long as you can do that, that'll like lead to longevity. Um, and it really fueled um, our approach to business. And then it also in these most recent fires were, were was absolute ammunition for me to believe that, you know, this, while no matter how catastrophic it could turn out, there was always going to be the next day. I remember, and I knew you guys were going to ask about the fires, and I'm jumping around, but I remember that the second day... You've obviously not listened to our podcast that <laughs> yeah. much. Oh, good. No, <laughs> clearly. Um, but that second day, the folk, the smoke was so thick in in, in, in around our place, and the, the news had already reported that the winery had burnt. So there were. I drove up. I can't see the winery. There are people lined on Denmark Street because we had a guard at the, at the gate crying. They can't see what they're crying at. And, uh, and, you know, I drove up and found, and there where the winery was intact. But three hours before that, because I couldn't sleep, it was still dark, I got up and wrote this entire sort of business plan about, okay, what is going to, we have a warehouse, our wine's off-site, like, we're going to get through this. Like, I wrote, the, that letter was in my head saying, okay, if there's no winery, I'm going to fucking figure out a way. We'll just, not, we're just going to figure out how to tackle it. And it was because... Certainly, because we'd gone through that. Did you? If you save that document? Yeah, I have both of them, and they, uh, you know, I mean, I get chills thinking about it. But you, you, you know, you 
Larger amphitheater, <laughs> better sound than oh the brand God, new about, Redwood Barn. How about bathrooms that work? <laughs> yeah. You know, how, how about like modern some, plumbing? Something <laughs> polished, something shiny and new, like all of you know everyone else. But even after the '06 earthquake and the fire, Gunlight Bunch, you had a good. I mean, in 1915, World's Fair comes to San Francisco, and yeah, you guys win 19 awards for your wines, one of them being grand prize. Yeah, that was so. What, what Brian, it, well done it, on the research. Hey, is it on the website yeah. or something? Is this on the gun link? Thing? It's amazing the <laughs> stuff you can find out there on the Google. <laughs> Brian yeah. is ready to go. <laughs> so, you know, it was um, uh, they, they, you know, the two. So, so basically, Charles and Francesca. Bunchu ultimately was her name. Uh, and these they, were your these great, were my great grandparents. Yeah, these would be my my grandfather's uh, um, my my grandfather's father was 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 Walter, and then there was another son um, named uh, Carl. And Carl and Walter were so Jacob had a daughter named Francesca after San Francisco. All right, he married Charles. She married Charles Bunchu, his business partner, and the winery went from Jay Gunlock and Company to Gunlock Bunchu. Charles and Francesca had two sons, among others, but two primary sons that took over the, that were aiming to take the business over, Carl and Walter. And together they got it through that 1915. Walt, Walter was the farmer landowner and Carl was the winemaker. And it certainly helped things that Walter at least for my cause, that Walter ended up marrying a woman who, whose family did a lot of timber work up in the Sierras. And so when the shit hit the fan a few years later, she they were able to buy the property out from all the other stakeholders, which right. is... A, so we've had a little bit of luck, if not a shitload of it, in the process of multiple generation transitions. But Walter was able to, essentially, with the help of his in-laws, buy out the rest of the family members. And so they did really well together, Walter and Carl. But when the, when the prohibition hit... Walter sort of got to keep the land with the help of his fa wife's family, and and uh, and Carl went over the hill and actually became the 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 pre John Daniels winemaker in Inglenook in Napa, like right. way early. Oh. So if you go and read like Napa, I just got a text from a guy that's all excited because he's reading about that now. Um, and uh, and Carl was like the Nebom, the 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 cap sea captain had died, and the and the widow was looking for some help. And the first person he hired was Carl Bunchu. So, so Sonoma Valley started the Napa Valley wine industry. You know what? I'm, I'm <laughs> glad you said that, Sam. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a definite direct link to that universe. Oh, Ian will be telling that story on the floor of the French Laundry <laughs> later this week. There we go. I mean, I we we, we sell Inglenook all the time, and I, I I like I like selling Inglenook because of the history of it. But yeah, I, I might I might bring that back to Sonoma right. at some point. Right. Well, <laughs> wrap that around. I mean, I remember that when when Co when when Francis Coppola first bought it and you'd go over there and before they really redid it, you walk in and one of the very first black and white pictures that you saw was this dude that was undeniably Bunchu, the big old <laughs> nose. He was like, that guy has to be related to everyone else. But, you know, so that's, that's sort of the, the ancient history as it, as it is in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, and, and prohibition kicks in and, and they start planting some fruit trees out there and limit the, the vine yeah. uh, space a little bit. It was really interesting that what what happened was, you know, and I was I, I'm a student of this, so I I've been, I still piece it together. But prohibition happened, uh, and then and then Walter, who was my great grandfather, died before it was before it was uh, rescinded, and so my grandfather Toll, who was like 19 at the time, 
had really come of age when there was no winemaking on the property. We had only been a, a vineyard um, and, and kind of just in, in limbo. Selling fruit for table grapes yeah, and sell, sacramental it, it, wine. Exactly, and in, those, in those early years of prohibition. But bootleg brandy. Exactly. Yeah. As soon as... Uh, as, soon as Toll, but Toll basically was in, in college in those days. My grandfather, who had to come home and take over this property right after Prohibition, and you know, as a 19-year-old kid, and ultimately kind of spent the rest of his life trying to get the property to work economically because he 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 you know in those days there was no value placed you know placed right. on premium. So he was competing against all the Central Valley growers, getting you know three or four times the yield. Um, way more sun, way less fog. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so he, I didn't really know this until we did a little thing where we did a, a play on our 150th anniversary. But Toll, Toll had a lot of help, primarily from Louis Martini Sr. as like a mentor huh. over in Napa, and then uh, and and then and that actually passed on because Louis Martini Jr. then kind of helped my dad and my grandfather evolve it. And it was my dad Jim who got out of college in the in the late 60s and said. You know, this is just after Telechef is beginning to make his his imprint in Napa that people are trying to recognize there's a quality over quantity and, and there's a premium being paid. And he convinced my dad or my grandfather that they should replant it, you know, tear out all the fruit trees that my grandfather had re done and, and replant it. And it was really lucky because in doing the research for this play that we did for 150th, Toll, my grandfather, had already purchased a property we're on. We're sitting here now on uh, near on the Sonoma Mountain Range, but in Sober Vista, for him to retire and he was going to sell the property to the University of California. He just couldn't make it, and uh, it was my dad who kind of said, "We got to try this," and uh, so it's really Jim who kind of saved the day. So was there Gunlock Bunshu labeled wine made in that era? When because so, actually I have a that that Ian brought in 1970. What is this in my glass again? Kleinberger. Uh, 1982, 1982. Gunbun oh, okay. Kleinberger. So the 70 was the wine on the last episode. Uh, so, but what? It gets very confusing. When um, through the 40s, 50s, 60s, was is there wine that has a Gunbun label on it, no. or is there was sort of the winery was dormant? The winery was dormant, and grapes were being sold. Uh, and then it was in 1973 was the first commercial vintage, okay. and uh, that was your dad. But when that was my dad. When they're selling, you guys are selling grapes to louis martini what i thought was interesting is a lot of times they're not getting paid per transaction so they're selling the grapes and this is what i heard that they would get paid after that wine was actually sold in the market i don't remember it being quite that brutal but there was a reason that you know when my dad who grew up really being a dirt farmer and loving it and wanting to continue my grandfather was pretty much adamant that he needed to become his own winery because the the and it, there were, he was just getting dicked around constantly by things such as that i knew that the prices were low and maybe payment terms were were farther out i didn't, i've never heard that but it, it may as well have been yeah so jeff the bonded winery 64 that goes back to the original. That's the original. So, so that means you guys were the sixty-fourth licensed winery in the state of California, correct? That's right. And I don't know where the other sixty-three are. I, I, I don't. I mean, <laughs> most of them are probably Southern California. That, yeah, yeah, it's Temecula, exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I mean, I, there's a, there's a few. I mean, the single-digit bonds in Napa isn't like the Napa Wine Company right there at the Oakville Crossroad. Uh, is a single digit. So that was an early, mm -hmm. early bond. 
Um, I mean, the, I like I think of Kenwood. I think was nine seventy eight, and I think Cundy is Cundy's like two o two. And um, you know, by and for reference point, uh, the winery sixteen six hundred bond is like twenty thousand something. Right. You know, I mean, so this wow. is. Uh, Right, I mean, we're talking. Right. So, uh, what's your bond number? Do you even know it? Off? I mean, uh, no, it's, right. it's 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 bigger than that. He's not bonded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by the time we Boss get bonded, like Dane Sellers. By the time we get bonded, it'll just be X's and O's. Yeah, exactly. He's just bondaged. Bart's not even legally allowed to be on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, Jeff, that's you how, guys, that's how far off the grid he is. You guys, you're not even at. I think in 1970, not even selling wines as a gun bun label. It's being sold as Weinberg. Well, right. we know it's always been Gunlock Bunchu. There was a, um, you know, Weinberg Wine Company, which is now called Bunchu Company, was sort of the original uh, corporate name. It sounds funny uh. to call it corporate in those days, but that's what that's what it was. We're we're, we're in Weinberg. Is your Weinberg, PO box Vi- the uh, Weinberg PO box? We are pine nine five four eight seven baby. We are PO box <laughs> one Weinberg wow. nine five four eight seven. Wow. So <laughs> that that's exciting. Um, and if things ever got desperate, we could sell that. We had a few offers. <laughs> Everybody wants to be P.O. Box 1. P.O. Box 1, Vineberg. I mean, the, we're going like way inside baseball here, but the Vineberg post office is uh, one of those like gem old school post offices. They don't, you know, there's never a line. I shouldn't even say it. Don't go to Vineberg. <laughs> don't go to the post office. It's not cool. But Sam, you're right on the money. It used to be a way station down there. Yeah. It, that used to be the spot where grapes would go in that 1915 right. season, for instance, that would go through. That was the, the train depot was right there. Wow. But so what's left is that little the that post, little post office. office. And that, I mean, that's where, I don't know where your wine is kept, but my wine's kept at the warehouse. That's yeah, now that's that, right you know, and right there, right Grosco. The for sure. But so so the hub of, the hub of, Sonoma Valley was yeah. was Weinberg. Well, and do those trains still run? You know, when you head to Sweet D and you see those trains kind of sitting on those tracks, does do trains even run down those they don't tracks come, anymore? They don't come up occasionally. They're they're privately they're privately held. Um, so there's some. I, I know a guy actually during the fire. Um, they had a backhoe out there at that little train yard at the end of Eighth Street where it hits the right. hits the highway, um, and they're like. Can we bring it somewhere? We brought it up the hill to, to cut fire bricks with. Um, so there's like a, a small railroad company that runs those lines. They you know they store some. I think there's like some giant tanks full of gasoline stored out there or something. Diesel tanks. Wow. Um, but you know even when I was even in my childhood there was trains coming up to uh, well where Groskopf is now is like a dog food factory or something. Yeah. Right. Um, so there was trains coming into town. You know, in the '80s, um, but now it's pretty pretty defunct out there. Yeah, except for the one guy that lives in his old trailer at the end yep. of Eighth Street. That you just wonder what the that's hell the guy. Who, so that guy, like, he's the he's the, he's the caretaker for the for, for the railroad, and he drove his that backhoe up Norbaum Road. Well, not Norbaum, up some trails that's to, so to the awesome. top of Norbaum Road on like Tuesday of the fire to help cut a break around oh, my parents' house. That's amazing. Yeah, wow. We've shattered a window and it's thing. If you guys it overheated. Are, we're, we're talking about this intersection that whether you're going to Napa or Sonoma, you have to pass it. It's right on, uh, it's right before Fremont Diner on your way to Napa. And, uh, those of us who live here have driven by that. There's a trailer yeah. right at the end of that street with a little garden, but it's like, it's so exposed. Every window that he looks out has a car driving by him. <laughs> totally. His garden is getting all steamed by every car that goes by. And I never, I've never actually seen him, 
So you're yeah. verifying I, that there is a human. There is being a human there. being there, <laughs> and the fork and the, and the backhoe runs. Yeah, the that, backhoe runs. So I heard he looks like uh, I heard he looks like Matthew McConaughey. He's <laughs> <laughs> Matthew McConaughey's twin brother. He's right. in hiding. <laughs> kind of hangs out there in his lawn chair. Talks about how good he is. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Should we should we make a fire? Should we? Let, uh, I think you know um, the the bun shoes were on the front lines uh, the whole time. So, you know, I, I know you can go as deep as you want with it, but I think, you know, a little bit of, of the, the Bunchu family fire experience since we're since we're Yeah, you know, I, I will say that you have more gray hair than before the fire. It's definitely, I just let the beard grow. It's all thankful. Right. I think I can shave it off eventually here. Um, yeah, we had, uh, we were definitely hit by the fire. And, uh, you know, it was, we have this, the little corner the southwest corner of Sonoma Valley, and um, I think one uh, one of a one of the aha moments of a million that week was running into like a a Cal Fire captain or some sort of upper echelon guy just in a in, in a pickup truck on our ranch who was doing an assessment really to try to figure out the origin story of the fire, and he said that. They were about ready to commit, which they or, or, or basically state, which they ultimately did, that the fire that hit us started on Atlas Peak, which we've all heard about that fire, but blew across southern Napa to the Park Frick Road that then blew through the little canyon that, hmm. that were so that, on that, the other side. That's crazy. It's, uh, so and 11 talking miles. About, we're 11. talking 11 miles. So then. So that was the first night, the very first night that everything sort of flash burned, meaning Fountain Grove, meaning the top of Atlas Peak. Right. Um, Glen Ellen down in uh, down at the bottom of Trinity there, and then I guess I guess up even through uh, Warm Springs that first day. Yep. Um, it the southern end came through across Napa. Didn't catch anything on in southern on, on in southern Napa, but it just hit this um, this canyon of sort of open space that's that you know I spent my life hiking around that sort of exists. It's basically if you're above Hudson. So if you're if you're familiar with the Napa Sonoma transition down there, um, the next time you're driving back to the city or towards Sonoma from Napa, or if you happen to be that way, you see Domaine Carneros, which catches your attention on the left. But if you were to look right, you see a hill th- at that point. If you just use your imagination, that hill sort of goes up and over into a series of grassland canyons that feed into Level Valley in, right. in Sonoma. That, that's where it started, right? And, I mean, and, that, that that first night in Carneros. Well, it came it came through basically the uh, so it went kind of between Mount Veter and and the highway there, kind of behind everybody, kind of behind Hudson, behind you know probably a, north of Hyde. It, it came from a little farther north. Um, you know the Browns Valley. The Browns. Va- that, that's where it blew yeah. over Blount, Browns Valley and kind of and then caught on it, at a at a uh, in the Partrick Road, which is a little offshoot canyon that's adjacent to Browns Valley, just in the sort of shadow of Mount Veter. And then it blew up. Didn't hit Mount Veter, but it blew up the southern part of it, and then through the canyon that basically outlets on the n- southern part of our property across into you know what's now Laura Chanel and Nicholson Ranch. And, um, you know, we were lucky we had a, we had a concert that night and, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say we were lucky at the time because we had a packed house, um, and the, uh, and the wind was howling and I was, I knew fire was a danger, but right in immediate 
concern for me was the wind. It was so windy that I was afraid an oak tree was going to fall on somebody wow. and run around. I thought about calling it off, um, but we played through in the band. It was Hope Sandoval, um, this great artist that hadn't played in eight years, so she had a ton of people there. Um, and, uh, you know, so we, we, it was like, thank God we got them and everybody off the property. And then just as we're sort of cleaning the barn up and I wouldn't have ever been there or been awake to see it. I saw an orange glow over the hill behind our barn. Um, and that's when I called my dad, our property is, is long. It's like a, almost a mile long on the South West facing slope of the Maya commas as, as basically it ends into Napa County. Uh, and so I saw it right above the, uh, the barns on the north end of our property. I saw it above that hill. I knew the wind was blowing toward them, so I called my dad and woke him up and said, you need, I think this isn't a big issue, but you should just look out your window. And we had a guy, one of the guys who was working the concert, got in his truck and drove over there to kind of investigate. And the first scare came, well, he called once. He said, oh, I see it. And he saw it. He drove back up so he could get a view, and he saw it when it was still in Napa, like lower Partrick Road. He said, ah, it's far away. It's not, it's not anywhere near. And then he called like literally like eight minutes later and he said, holy shit, it's right here. I mean, wow. it had gone wow. that quick. And, you know, my dad was up and he was, um, he, we have a neighbor that's on that ranch that is older. And to this day, rightfully, I think, thanks my dad for his life because my dad went up there and got him out and, you know, and his, that house was gone. And then, you know, for us, it was, um, I was over there. We were picking on that ranch, so we had 50 guys in the field. Right, you had uh, Brian Shepard out there. Exactly. With, we had uh, and Toll, and we had Wal the Walsh guys were out there. And then, you know, my mom left, and my sister was wasn't there, but had kind of gone over there. And my dad had basically said, "I'm not leaving. You know, I'm going to stay there and fight this thing." And then my cousin Toll, who works for Walsh, which is a vineyard management company that farms all over Napa and southern Sonoma. If you live around here, you see a red truck with a white roof. Yeah. That's a Walsh Vineyard yeah. Management Company. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good thing. You can see them all over the place. But he had, his story was amazing that night because he had a crew on Atlas Peak, and he was with that crew. And he said that until, until, he, until 20 minutes later when he drove into Sonoma, the scariest thing in his life happened when that mountain erupted and he was, he was evacuating his crew off Atlas Peak. Down he said, Soda Canyon Road. Like down, he said it was a firestorm. He said he was getting his guys out. There was sheer panic. I mean, not panic, but calmed, hyper-concerned getting guys off Atlas Peak. And then what he did was he drove, and he's got to be one of the only people to do this because he's interested in our family place. He drove down, down Silverado Trail, through the southern, basically followed the route of the fire, but but on the road, and then when he gets to Nicholson Ranch, he sees the whole mountain south of Nicholson Ranch, or, or, or I'm sorry, northwest of Nicholson Ranch, is on fire, and he's driving right below the ranch. He had already been radioed that we that he'd gotten his crew out, but he looked up to where my parents lived, and he's like, and it was he wouldn't even go in there because there was so much fire. So he drives over to the winery calls me and says, hey, uh, there's no one up there, right? Um, and he, his tires melted. He was driving up wow. like he, oh was, his, he was driving by, by Domain Carneros up that slope down into by Nicholson, and he was, he was basically on fire as he was driving through that. And then he said, there's no one over there, right? And uh, you know, I said, no, Dad's over there. And I think Mark, the guy that I'd sent over there, was with him, and he said, I would not have anybody over there. I'd get him out. And I was like... You know, he'd just been through it. He'd he'd been through it, and right. at that point, you know, this is where there's just you know, I was, um, it was it was a horrifying 
you know, basically I had one, we had one guy, uh, from the concert who works with a, my promoter partner that is this, uh, this, he's not a kid, but he's this kind of, we call him this Zen Jake. His name's Jake, Jacob Zen guy that like, whenever we get a, a, a legacy artist, like, like, um, television or the residence, or we get some sort of seasoned long time, like Peter Murphy, like he's the whisperer for sort of seasoned kind of cray cray artist because he's so zen like and he looked at me said do you want some help and i said thinking about trying to get my dad out of that house i'm like you know jake why don't you come with me and we had this we had we had this jeep i had you know the The guy the guy to deal with the old artist exactly it's like i just said and i drove and i had this jeep and the road with napa road was closed so it was just this horrific drive basically by those of you who don't know where we are we're basically right adjacent to scribe scribe and we're so we surround scribe so we sort of drove right below it through our whole property the back channels to get up and it's a to drive fast in that area is a it's a harrowing thing so you're not i wasn't really a regular lo- day yeah, yeah. so during I, the daytime not so on I, fire so i wasn't really looking around i was like paying attention to the road i was driving fast and i was like and as we got closer over there, it got oranger and oranger. We finally hit one line of trees where there was sparks were coming into the Jeep because I didn't have the top on. And um, and then I finally like I finally pull on to the to the main ranch where they live and I and I hit a straightaway. And for the first time, it's a you know, it's probably a four hundred yard straightaway. So I could kind of take my eye off and I sort of just got my bearings and I look around and the fucking mountain is completely on fire, 270 around me, and riding ahead of me. As long as I live, I'll never forget this. There was a, there's a, there's a, there was a lot that we sold off probably 10 or 15 years ago. That's on this knoll, and this great couple bought it. And unlike a lot of people who sort of build hilltop houses, they tucked their. I knew they built a nice house up there. I'd never been there, but there, but you couldn't see it. It was kind of, it wasn't an ego thing. It was tucked up in there. And so I had never seen it. I knew it was up there, but as I come along and I know, and I'm looking at this ridge line, I notice that the top of the ridge is strangely, to- that's totally aflame, is absolutely parallel. These parallel lines on fire. And I like yeah. have to do a double take. I'm like, my fucking God, that's that house. And then I pull up and there's my dad with a water hose <laughs> and uh, holding on the barn and my, and his, and his, and my, and Mark is on the other side and, you know, the, if I know now, you know, a week of fighting fires, then what I know now, there's a chance I might have joined, joined him because um, there was an out with the vineyard right there. But it was basically the mission was to get him out. And yeah. so, um, and the house was pretty much unsavable. It burnt an hour after I got him out of there. So it was a big night. And then this, this could go on forever. But just I just think it's funny irony that, like, that was the abnormal night when they were onshore winds, right? Southerly winds. And then it turned normal. Right. Like, that's what really, the winds like died down and turned normal, which were offshore. So the fire that sort of went south and hit like almost Sears Point, you know, burned to the bay, burned to the bay, yeah, yeah. turned around and just came back. And so the next day it came north and it came right above us. And it was that, it was the second morning that I thought that the place had burnt because I went to bed with a 50 foot flame of above the winery but it burnt north of it and then we had like six days of shit in our pants waiting and then it went north and then it came back came back on the saturday like it was just gnarly so uh it was a harrowing experience and uh but thankfully for us 
you know, we, uh, uh, my parents weren't as lucky personally. Um, you know, they were lucky to get out alive. And so that's why I don't feel so bad that they don't have anything because there was a, you know, and any other night they might've been asleep and they wouldn't have gotten the phone call. Um, but they, they've been struggling a bit. Um, you know, but as far as the winery is concerned, um, it's, it's doing great. And, you know, as we predicted, it's looking, it's regenerating up there. Um, you know, that I had the, that how that hill burnt when I was five years old. And so, uh, I remember very clearly that whole Arrowhead mountain range burning. And then I remember even more clearly. So what fire was that? That was not the 64 fire right. and it wasn't even, it wasn't the 98 or whatever that yeah, was yeah, that 96. hit you guys. Yeah. This was an isolated Southern Mayakamas fire okay. that, you know, was isolated enough that there were a ton of resources there, so it wasn't like this one where the where well, that was the kind of thing out. with the, the Cave Dale fire '96. It was the only fire in California that day, and you know, still four thousand acres and homes and vineyards yeah. burned, but every fire truck in yeah. half of California was there. Oh, right. you know, those guys live for that, exactly. you know, in normal times. And so, but I had seen it, and and what's amazing is that I grew up there, and sort of from the time that I, you know, about obviously five on, but through eight, 10, even to 15, I'd hike that mountain constantly. And then I got old and didn't think about it, but you know, it hasn't been hikeable in the way that it is now since for I years. Mean, like it's just, it's a needed actual thing for the ecosystem. It just sucked that house has gotten. I remember way. going up with you one time on mountain bikes to the top of that hill. And there's a USGS marker on the top of that mountain, right? Yeah. They uh, triangulate the top of Arrowhead mountain with Mount Diablo and, um, and Mount Tam to, to measure before GPS, right. when they had to do hard measurement uh, of what's the moves. what's the elevation of the top of Arrowhead right there? Uh, I think it's like twelve hundred. Okay, it's not su- it's yeah. not super high, but it's steep to get up there. Right, it, it goes gentle to about one hundred and fifty, and then it just shoots up. <laughs> you know. So are you going to cut a trail now that now that you can? There's a there's a ton of tra- cuttable trails up there. I mean, uh, yeah, you could. It's a good time to be trail building right I'll now. Bring my bike. Yeah, yeah that's right. right. Bring a bike and a chainsaw. Well, Jeff, where does your uh, love of music come from? Uh, well, you know, we've been doing music um, forever, uh, and I, I mean, and that I knew that I knew that because we have some pictures of guys like performing on the hill where the our main amphitheater is during the first Vintage Festival, and so we've been doing it. But but then <laughs> first, and Vintage wait, Festival, wait, wait. For the yeah. oldest festival in California. Yeah, which is what year? <laughs> Uh, 1860s something? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think it's 1860s. I think, I think it's 1860s. Whatever it is, it's old. And the, the parade guy, the in Sonoma was, is the oldest parade in California. The guy was fully decked in like a in like a Greek <laughs> Grecian robe. Um, and uh, <laughs> but you know, but then seeing this diary with these pictures that were drawn by another shipmate of of Jacob, my great great grandfather, and seeing him holding a guitar, it's not BS. There's been music ever since. But my dad was, um, you know, I, I my dad. Played me Fleetwood Mac and introduced me to the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo and um, was way into the Talking Heads way back when, even though he's a jazz guy. Um, and then, uh, you know, I sort of always loved rap, ironically, in the late 80s, if you can imagine that, that in the early good 80s. Good time to be in. It was, that was good rapping. It was, days. It I mean, was, it was, it was it, some good stuff out there. No, but, but it was definitely 
I was I was definitely and you grew up in Sonoma, so you had to go out and find some urban music. I understand. So basically, everything I knew about New York came from Grandmaster Flash, and I just I just wanted to go. I mean, I honestly, that's everything I ever knew about that city was you know one young punk. But but you you if I remember right, you played in a band in college. Yeah, so I played in a band and uh, and and liked it, loved the scene, loved music, uh, and we you know came time in those days. It wasn't the wine business. No, um, but I, I had done this thing in, 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 in college where, you know, in those days, I went to school in Los Angeles, and there was, you know, sort of this aura around wine that if you, were, if you did it for a living, you had to, by definition, kind of be a dick right. or a snob. And so I sort of, as a dick and a snob that, about <laughs> not being a dick, <laughs> sort of went, went around. When somebody put up a wine tasting note, I went around, I went, I'm going to go say, what the fuck is going on? Somebody's doing a wine tasting class. I want to know what this is. And uh, it's a, I was at USC, university, big college, and I get to this giant room, like a, a lecture hall, and I'm early, and it's packed. Like, I had an, uh, you know, at that, at that point, my wine experience, again, we were talking a little earlier, luckily had been with some pretty good wines off our property and some business partners that were doing primarily French wines, and the people that sold them, which were nice guys for sure, but urban and kind of lived in the on-premise world and the and the restaurant and the hospitality universe. And then I worked very closely as a kid growing up with the guys who made it that were just did it because they love it. And that's sort of what inspired the, to this day our approach to wine. But I get into this classroom and there are 400 people in there and the buzz is palpable. I remember thinking like, God, these people are interested in this, and there's like a lot of pretty girls in this room. I'm like, I was like, what am I, what, what's going on? And then the chemistry teacher that was anointed to be the sort of leader of this thing, you could tell, and we all know him, we know him well, because he was a hyper-passionate about wine, but a hyper-hyper geek, chemistry teacher. Like, he just, he went straight into... I mean, basically a Joel Peterson. Basically that. And, and what he managed to do, uh, you know, with unfortunately not even half the charm probably, what he managed right. to do was take the wind out of that, sit, that room in about 30 seconds. Like it went from a room that was so excited to hear about wine to a room that said, oh, my God, I got to know this to do that. You know, and, and, and that really said, I'm gonna, I want to make wine that tastes as good as the best in the world, but it's always approached sort of with that sort of spirit of engagement. And, you know, long story short, music's been a good way for us to do that and also scratch a personal love, Right. you know. Well, you started a, 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 a group with uh, John Sebastiani and Mike San Giacomo. Oh. Come on, right? Bart. The, you really have to bring that you're up. You're going to out me. Bart was a... Bart was a Bart the was wine a to benefit... I, I wasn't going to say The wine brats, but it was... Brats was uh, wines to benefit responsible adults of tomorrow's yes. society. Oh, so, so it wasn't spelled B-R-A-T-Z. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. And, wait, and what was, what was that all about? You know, it was... It was what it was was... Uh, it was kind of instigated by that experience. And then, and then, and then when, I, you know, when I decided that I wasn't going to follow my band and try to get signed which was a big deal, and I was going to come home, I went from sort of this vibrant world in Los Angeles to Sonoma, and with a product that I knew was cool, but I hadn't really seen... the streets it, at 9 o'clock. You know, right. but I hadn't seen a lot of interesting people showing what I thought was cool about it. And, you know, you, we, between the three of us, we had more ambition than we had skills and respo- formal responsibility in our family businesses. Right. And so we took it upon ourselves to sort of throw these... We, you know, what we did was we sent a blind fax to 400 wineries 
and uh, didn't even say who we were, what we were doing. It was like, if you're under 30 or Wait, under 20... It was, it was a fax. I just <laughs> want to throw that out there Sam, real quick. You, you need to go back and understand. And you, guys gotta, you know what faxes are. <laughs> not, not even a cold call. A right, cold it was fax. A, a, a Is that fax even machine. a thing? Has there it ever was, been a cold it fax? It was basically a, a modern version of a, of a spam oh, email. spam email. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> but we threw this taste in Santa Rosa. And again, there were three guys from Sonoma. So that for us, that was kind of a big deal to just and, throw and, it in. And I think that first tasting was at a radio station, wasn't it? And, well, I don't remember. Really, cafe... It might have been, but what I do know is like 90 or 100 people showed up, and we're like, holy shit. In fact, it might have been more than that. We're like a bunch of young people showed up and said, God, we're dying wow. for this. And so it became this like juggernaut there for about five years, a nonprofit that a couple big wineries um, funded, uh, particularly Gallo after a, a long one-on-one -on -one meeting with Ernest, you know, where we had to pitch him. Um, to kind of make wine come alive. And we did some, you know, again, things that kind of influenced what we do today. We threw, we would pair wine with fashion and technology, and oh. we threw a tasting in Windows of the World in New York City, which was, that was my first time in New York. And I remember standing at the top of that building going, oh man. Um, so we, yeah, we, we started that. And we, that did a, we did a miniature golf tournament in Embarcadero 1. Yeah. And remember, Jeff, we took down all these old dead grapevines from Gunlock Bunchu and grape. Yeah. Steaks, and we made a, a indoor a mini golf thing. Yeah, and there was, was a band sweet. there, and we had a band. Know, I mean, and there were chapters. At one point, there were like sixty chapters around the country. Holy shit! And um, it was a, it was you know it. Maybe wine we need a little wine brats revival around. You here. were you were kind of right. trying to do the opposite of what what that that class did. You walked in, and all these young kids were excited, and then the professor just kills it. You were like, let's 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 come let's, make let's it make come this alive. fun again, which yeah. is why. And I feel like, and I, I've talked, we've talked about this before, like. That's why I feel like that's why a lot of us are, are in this business is because it's a it's fun yeah. b it gets you laid c it's like it's just fun it's it, just like it, it's this it really <laughs> I mean <laughs> I mean at the end of the day and that's how ladies and gentlemen how you get a job at the French Laundry that's your that's your job interview script it's, right there it's, it's, I'm just trying to have fun get laid here Thomas uh, <laughs> uh, you guys are gonna be in so much trouble. It is this, it's this thing that it is it's 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 intellectual. It's historical. It's this thing that you can learn from. It's this thing that you that, that can benefit and and enrich your life in in so many ways. Um, but at the end of the day, it's fun. And and when you try and come in like that professor did, and just like just crushes your yeah your dreams. It really is a little bit like that. The message being that like all those attributes are what make us get up every day the fact that wines change the same vineyard does something different every single vintage that you have to mess with trying to manage it and the way the vines change as they age i mean all that stuff is so interesting and and can be enriching to understand but it's is not a prerequisite to enjoyment and and you know there was we used to joke about the fact that like you never heard anybody apologize for saying if you asked them like you know, what toothpaste do you eat? Well, I'm sorry, I'm not a toothpaste connoisseur. I, I, I just use Crest, you know? Yeah. And like, even to this day, it's like, well, what wine do you drink? It's like, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not a wine connoisseur. So they, there's so many people that just feel like they need to apologize before they, they pontificate on what something tastes like. And we all know as professionals that you can be a student of this forever and have just as varying opinion on the way something tastes as your other neighbor expert as as yeah. uh, you know as you do with somebody that never has and they might have and that person might have an equal take on it you know that their take from a sensory perspective is just as valid as yours it's just probably not more valid because they don't have any any preconceptions or notions they're Ex not they're not trying to be 
they're not trying to bullshit it. They're just going to tell you what it is. It's one of the reasons I, I love pouring wines for for the the younger members of the staff that that don't yeah they don't they don't quote unquote know anything and and especially the women because women generally have a better sense of taste right. and smell than we do. And it's like I want to know what you think. Yeah. I want to know what you think about this wine. Right. You I, don't care what the label is. No, you, not you at all. They, no, did, they give zero. No they give zero shits. Right. Yeah, uh, they're gonna tell you like it could be a wine that, that cost five thousand dollars and that maybe I think is amazing. And they're like, I think this sucks. And I'm like, totally. well, that's fair. Yep. That you are entitled to your opinion. I might still like it, but it's yeah, it's, they're sure they're probably right. But and they're but they're but at the end of the day, they're probably right. And I walk away going, shit, maybe. Maybe they're right. Maybe I should stop selling that. Yeah, whole maybe, should rethink, uh, maybe I should quit. Um, <laughs> go work to, at Whole Foods. Exactly. <laughs> I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go pick carrots somewhere. Um, <laughs> nobody's opinions on carrots. Nobody cares. Um, Terry, I, I, we can get deep on carrots, man. <laughs> no, we probably could. There's probably the wrong audience for that. Um, Terry Thies does does a great part on on what you just spoke on in his his book, Reading Between the Vines. Uh, this whole you know kind of dialogue about you meet some guy at a party and he's a mechanic. He, he, he works on cars and he goes, I'm a mechanic and nobody ever goes, Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know much about cars. No. Then nobody like backpedals and goes, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't no, really, I don't right. really understand cars. Um, so I, I can't talk to you and you go to a party and you say, I'm a sommelier or I'm a winemaker. Right. I like wine. People go, Oh, I don't, I don't know a lot about wine. It is. A, and it, they, and they just like, don't want to talk to you. They like feel embarrassed. I'm like, D -d do you, do you like, do you, do you drink? Yeah. It's right. Like, yes. Okay. Great. You're qualified. So do you Can think you that, taste things? Can, do, you, do you eat? So do you think that ever changes? I think it changes if we if we if we make a change, and I think I think we're I think we're doing that slowly. As a you know, I'm I'm still I've only been in this for you know four or five years. I'm I'm new to that. This game is thousands of years old, and, yeah. and 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 this game as we know it now is only recently very pretentious, and as far as I can tell. You know, I don't. I don't think they were crazy pretentious about this two thousand years ago. I think it was like we threw some grapes in a sack and they, they turned into wine. They got us drunk. Um, you know, I think this is kind of a, a new invention of ours, and I think we need to reverse kind of what we've done. And I think, and and that's part of what I what I enjoy about the profession of of being a sommelier, especially at a prestigious restaurant, is is trying to change that opinion and trying to bring fun back to yeah what we do. And 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 yes, you can you can be. But how do you how do you do I mean I think this is a quite uh, obviously the the gun bun model to I think gun bun that's a great gun yeah. a great example of this because gun bun is serious one but back, also have back how into, do you do that at serious how wine. do you do that at the French laundry I mean in all seriousness you know the French laundry is about the the prestige and the exclusivity of it how do you I, I could yeah. take a shot at mm -hmm. that, even though I haven't been lucky enough to eat over there because I'm not. A they don't let us. We're from Sonoma. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a resident. Just come by tonight. So right. dinner's on in. There's this like force field <laughs> around. It's like no, no Sonoma. Is it? No, please. But we, we would we, love to have we've you been by. we've been dancing around this for years because I mean I as much as I you know I always tell everybody that I want to be able to say that Mud Honey played in my barn and that Parker gave my cab a hundred points, and so to, but to live in the latter part of that world. In both cases, actually, there's a lot of hype you've got to kind of get through. Mud Honey right. is not going to play. Mud Honey is an old grunge band from Seattle. And the way that business works, it's strangely like it's not you've got to demonstrate a capacity to be a venue that can treat a treat an artist like that the way they need to be treated. And it doesn't even have to do with the amount they're paid. It's like 
Is it going to be the kind of venue that their their fans are going to like? Is the promoter a guy that gets along with their tour manager? Are they, you know, is it is is the vibe established and like legit? And you don't you can't buy it. You can buy it and pay like ten times more, and they play your birthday party and you're you get to go back to your other job. But if you're tuning it as a real venue, you don't get a band like Mud Honey without really earning the keep. The same way with wine, like. Like to be a wine that stands out on a list like the French Laundry, and I don't know that list, but I just know the work that goes into it. So I'm going to imagine here for a second. You know, these wines have to be well made. Like they have to be granularly attended to. You'd hope they all were. They have to sort of they have to they have to stand up to whatever hype is built around them. So there's a there there, um, and. The challenge for me that the way Gunlock Bunchu and, and our families always tried to walk is we want to make sure that there is there. There, I mean, like, you know, that it has to be so in the bottle for it to 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 represent itself. But we fall away pretty quickly as soon as the sort of the non tangible airs of a of sort of what we would consider modern day brand, wine branding start to hit. Like as soon as it gets into like. You know, we can say who our winemaker is. I know exactly who he's worked with. I know he's made a hundred point wine with another guy, and he and Keith is a great guy. But the way that the modern vernacular is, you know, well, he worked with this guy, he worked with this guy, he worked with this guy um, to establish credibility. You know, we we all that exists for us. But if we have to get to the point that we're explaining that too much, then we're probably hanging out with people that missing the point. We're, we're probably just we're hanging out too much with people that we don't really want to be around necessarily because to your point there's a lot of fun people that appreciate that knowledge and want to know that it's there but are going to go on to banging their head you know and 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 talking to their friends about it yeah and 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 that's you know to 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 that same point you know for a a large part of the dialogue for for any of the wines that that we're going to open or sell you know i'm we're always asking who who is the winemaker what did they do and it's not i don't care about points 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 don't matter but you know what what's their background what's their history it's always you know, it's it's kind of not off off putting is the wrong word, but it's like I feel like I don't have much to go on if I just know the name, but right. don't know what they did before. It's like, so who are they? I don't know. They just make this wine. At the end of the day, if I've tasted it, it's a great wine. I'm gonna be fully confident in pouring it, and you taste it, and you go, "Holy crap, this is right. amazing!" But it's always nice to have that backstory of this person did this for 15 years with this guy and trained here and well, it's did, a, did a harvest it, there. It, it's basically you know, the television plays at Gunlock Bunchy because. Uh, you know, Mud Honey played. Uh, Mud Honey played because Ty Seagal played. It's, that's the, you know, the exact and so there's same, a, there's just, idea. there's a, yeah. there's, you know, as a professional sort of taste maker, you got to validate that you're not just bringing something completely empty right. to the table. Right. Um, but I'm not always convinced that that's, you know, that, 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 that has a place among consumers unless they really want to be there yeah. and want to know that yeah. stuff because no one's, you know, no one really cares, you know, who produced pet sounds from the beach boys. They, they love it. A few people, geeks really do love it. Music people could tell you that, but like, they know it's a great record. Fans will listen to it and they don't feel like they have to know who the producer was to enjoy it. And sometimes I worry, you know, when you get wine gets more and more precious that there's some sort of prerequisite that, Oh, you better be able to list, 10,000 attributes of it before you can just stick your nose in and, and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, you know, which is to back to that point of how do you get people to just trust their own palate? And, and, and what I see from the restaurant level, you know, it's, it's always a bummer. We'll have people that come in and, and they want to know, you know, what, God, what was the difference between the 94 
you know, J. Schramm versus the 97 J. Schramm. It's like, I don't know, it was three years difference. It was like slightly different vintage. Yeah. They probably made it in the same way. They're like, what are the exact different? I'm like, I don't know. Like, yeah, exactly. you, I, I could call up the winemaker and he could maybe recollect 25 years ago what the difference was, but probably not. And why do they need to know that? And why do you care? Because there are some people that still have that pretension, but it's few and far between. Yeah. We get we get very, and even at this level of restaurant, we get very few of those guests. And even when we do it, like it almost it, like it bums me out. I'm like, oh god, how do I? Yeah, I don't know how to deal with this. But that's like once a month, maybe. The, by and large, ninety nine point nine percent of our guests just go. This is a really long list. I can't look through it all. Please help me pick some wines that I'm going to enjoy with my meal. And they trust us. They trust us enough to do that. And you know what? At the end of the day, and this it's the same thing with 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 making wines. It's you know, yes, you can have that backstory and you should have a little bit of backstory. You should be able to back it up. We should be able to back up our service with quality service and, and, and doing the right thing and making people feel good and, and going by the, the standards that, that we've set and that the standards of, of our tradition in the restaurant. But at the end of the day, you've got to make it personal. At the end of the day, it's, it's gotta be fun. Like, yeah. un, like Unbun makes their wine fun. We try and make our service fun and people walk in having maybe this preconception that this is going to be kind of stuffy and they're going to feel a little right. awkward. And, and a lot of people do walk in thinking, I don't really know like which fork to use, like where do I put my hand? Right. Am I allowed to like, people joke all the time. They're like, are you going to kick me out if I lick my plate? I'm like, I would clap if you licked your plate. That would be amazing. We would die laughing. <laughs> um, like, like, please, like go for it. Um, I heard it? you have to lick your plate at French Laundry just to get like a full meal out of it. You get, like, an <laughs> entire bite of every item you have to. want to hit a thousand calories tonight somehow. <laughs> But isn't that great, Ian? That you, I like being the one that gets to unwind those type of guests, though, that come in and they're they're kind of a little, you know, they're they're a little stiff and and they they have a certain expectation. And when you start talking to them like normal people, you get to sort of unwind them a little bit, and, and that's they, it. And they and go, that's, "Wow!" These and that's people all there are is actually to it. normal people. And that's <laughs> the same. Like Sam, you're asking, like, how do you do that? It's like literally, you just talk to them like they're normal. Talk to them like they're like they're your friends. Right. Be professional with them, but make them laugh. If you can make them laugh within the first course, if you can crack, a, if you can crack a smile, over you, you exactly, you win. You, you, you've, you've already won. And then you've got, you've got three more hours to continue that. Well, uh, that to me, what the way you're describing that Ian is like a major point of progress from at least my career in this industry, because there is nothing that is more valuable to a diner and a restaurant than somebody who knows a wine list. I mean, and, and who can who can be friendly in conveying to somebody like what might be good on it? Because you know it's all good, but it's just like you know. Again, I I'm always comparing it to music, but no one ever went to a a record store when you couldn't listen to everything before. If you were a music fan, without going to the guy, you know, and asking him, "Well, I'm going to buy this record. What do you recommend?" Because there's no way you know what the hell is out yeah. there, and. And I have just, I love, and I tell anybody that'll listen, like, you don't have to know everything on that wine list. You just have to trust the person that you, just call them over and ask them. And I, and I, and nowadays I'm totally confident doing that because of the culture of the sommelier and how it is moved towards approachability. It used to be when I started that that was not always going to be a comfortable exercise, you know, that you get, and, and for the most part, it sounds counterintuitive, but Generally, it would be the restaurant that would be that that didn't have sort of that approachability factor, no matter what you were, what you what kind of reputation it had, um, that would have a psalm in, and it wasn't always, you know, it was it wasn't as common to have psalms that made you feel comfortable about not knowing anything. 
And really now, if you're going to a good, well thought out list, you're not going to know everything on that thing. If you're, you, can't. Uh, you know, you just can't. And that's so, the great thing about wine. I, I mean, mean, that's it. So you, you know, to have a guide, a restaurant, if you go to a restaurant that's lucky enough to give you a guide, it's like, you know, it's trying to do anything without a guide is, is hard. And, uh, you know, and I think that I really commend what, what, what you're doing and what sort of this, you know, I'm sort of a student of it from the outside, what the whole world of sommeliers is now. And how, how how approachable it's made wine. Well, and a, I mean, obviously the, the 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 catalyst for that. Maybe not obviously, but for for me at least. I mean, when I got into wine, the movie Psalm had literally just come out. I, I think it had come out two days before I picked up the wine bible. Um, I got into wine because I realized I knew nothing. I was still drinking two buck chuck, and I like I knew nothing. So I picked up the wine bible, and somebody had texted me, "Hey, have you watched that documentary yet?" And I was like, "No." So I put it on. I go, "Wow, this is really fun. This is this is cool. I can I can get into this." And I think that was that was the catalyst for for hopefully what I think is a, is a transition in, in this career and in this, in this business, in this profession and in the way ultimately that people think about wine and people think about ordering wine at restaurants and people think about, you know, being intimidated or not being intimidated. And, and, and what I hope is a, a transition for, for everybody that does this in, in restaurants around the country, which is no, you got to know your shit. You need yep. to know what you're talking about. You need to know your list, yep. know what you're talking about. You can't make everything up at the end of the day. Part of being a Psalm is, bullshitting a little bit but it's, right. it's the same thing in every it's the same thing in hospitality it's part of anything it's a good it's it's part it's part of everything is is knowing enough it's, it's 46 know, episodes knowing, of the podcast <laughs> that is the model so we're still making this up as we go along um you've, you've got to know it you've got to have a base knowledge and your base knowledge should be really really good right. um but at the end of the day you you it's it's about delivering service and, and making people feel comfortable and, and getting involved in, and this is a big thing for, for me right now. And, and I hope, and I don't know how much this is catching on in other restaurants. I don't, I don't have a huge grasp on other restaurants, but breaking out of just being a Psalm and, and running food, clearing tables, pouring waters, getting out of just, I, I, there's still so many Psalms that just want to pour wine and open wine and talk about wine. And that's such a disservice to the restaurant and to your guests. We need to get out of that shell of, I'm a wine guy, so all I do is wine. You're a restaurant guy at the end of the day. You are part of the leadership team. You are part of making that restaurant run. Ask your table how their dish was. Know what was on their dish, first of all. Know what the food was. Run the food. Talk about the food. Be able to pair the wine with the food. You can talk about vintages all you want, but if you don't know the culture of the restaurant, if yeah. you don't know the culture of, of the food that's on the table, if you don't know how to be a team player and, and work with everybody else, then you're you're failing and that's uh, i mean that's extreme but that's that's my opinion it's pretty refreshing yeah. I, I, that sounds great to me fists in the air on yeah, the podcast i, I know what ian you know what here's my favorite no, question <laughs> from a guest that, that would come in and say i'm looking for the most value-oriented bottle of wine on your list because Gun end of the day <laughs> the end of the day though that's what as I, a psalm that's what I you're sold looking that last for night personally and I, was, and I was thrilled about it I mean, it was one I, of those tables that come in and they go, your wine list is really expensive. And I was yeah. like, you know what? You're at it the is. French Laundry. I was yeah. like, you're at the French Laundry and we have a lot of really Did good wine here. Did you not read yeah. the Yelp reviews? Yeah. We have a $50,000 bottle of Screaming Eagle in Magnum from the inaugural vintage. I know that's not your wine, but what right. I do have is this $95 bottle of Teeter Totter right. Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley made delicious. by Benoit Toquette, who also makes wine that's on our list for $800. This one is $95. They loved it. Yep. And that for me is just as much of a win as for selling sure. first growth yeah. Bordeaux from 1970. There yeah. you go. 
Hey, can, That's uh, awesome. Jeff, can you talk about your upcoming uh, musical? Uh, yes. Events? Yeah, what's going on? So uh, I brought you. a couple. Well, it's a big day because we just announced the lineup for um, our our East Coast Wichika Festival. Wichika is a, um, talking about approachability, Wichika named after a, uh, a, a Native American tribe slash soil type in our neighborhood because Gunlock Bunchy never does anything that you can pronounce. pronounce. <laughs> so why make a music festival you can pronounce? Um, H-U-I-C-H-I-C-A. Um, a buddy of mine, one of the guys in my universe that stayed in music, became a tour manager, was tour managing the Shins. I got to know those guys, and one of the guys in that band became a good friend. And we lamented, we're talking about the approachability, there's so much around wine and music that are similar. Because at the end of the day, if you really are love wine, you'd love to really go down the hole about who tasted what, what did it. Same with music. And we, we said, we're going to do a little festival where we recognize that great art and great wine could be made by nice people and assholes, and we're going to leave out the assholes. So the bands were his friends, and the food and wine, we were the wine vendor, but the food vendors always had to have kind of an approachable attitude. Um, and we started off just doing sort of a, hyper curated little festival that we put festival underneath it to sound important this was 11 years ago there's no bottle rock and now we're, we're it's the total opposite it's a super <laughs> high touch super small thing but um has become this kind of legitimate place for heritage bands to play or up-and-coming bands um kind of with a folk uh a little bit of a, an alt folk component but mostly indie folk jam with no jam um you know, and then we three years ago we've been doing it in Sonoma since eighteen or eighteen since uh, hey, eleven. It's the bunch years. of stuff. It's all been going on. It's for like forever. Of years. <laughs> it feels when, like it about this they, time when of they year. invented music festivals. <laughs> <laughs> and no, but we just uh, you know we found a we uh, we've been doing eleven years, and then three years ago we found a three hundred acre dairy farm, multi generational dairy farm in Hudson Valley. And convince Sarah the cows the, in New York, <laughs> you know, and, con- and convince Sarah who may, whose brother makes this killer cheese from her these organic cows to do this little festival. So we're doing our we just announced our tickets are going on sale today for the one in, in um for the one in Hudson Valley. But no, it's June seventh and eighth in Sonoma if you're around here. I'm sorry, eighth and ninth in Sonoma. June eighth, that's my here. birthday. You gotta show up. Uh, maybe a birthday you, party at listen, Wichita. You know somebody. You, I, you can uh, do I have an in over there? Can I get a can I get a backstage pass? You, you can <laughs> yes. You fit right in. Don't worry. But what's cool about this fest is that invariably you'll have the artists that are just hanging out watching the bands with with everybody Drinking else. a glass of Riesling. And exactly. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, we've had a lot of bands that are sort of, it's kind of an artist festival. And you know that because one year Jonathan Wilson was playing and Bob Weir rolled up and, and just played with him unannounced. And the next year, this guy, this 70 this year old pioneer electronic musician, believe it or not, who played, was playing electronic music in Greenwich Village before Bob Dylan played an electric guitar. Whoa. And his name, his name was Silver Apples, what he went by. But who other than Jello Biafra, which kind of checked me off, rolls in and plays with him? I'm like, wow. My partner Eric loves the dead, and I, I like the dead Kennedys. And so we both got scratched. Our itches were scratched in setting this off. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of, there's like three sub, you know, this is just kind of a, it's a, Wachika is a good place to come to hear new music that's really good. Um, and see some people that have dedicated their lives to it, both on the East Coast and the West Coast. And then we do these one-offs at the winery, and Bart was lamenting the fact that he missed the residents. Uh, So we've got the residents, we just had the residents on Saturday night, 
First time I ever smoked pot was at a residence show at the Fillmore. <laughs> that was the right thing to do. Yeah. When he was yeah, three. Exactly. How old were you? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. When he was three, that's <laughs> when he had. All right. First time I smoked pot on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they, they brought it to the barn on Saturday night. Just freaked everybody yeah, out. Yeah, but they're fucking weird uh, dudes. They were so weird. But there were a lot of people that were just looking at them do their art. But we, you know, that's a good example of a heritage band. That band influenced... You know, Devo and and uh, and and like Primus. If you don't and know who the residents are, there you've seen you've seen the residents, even if you've never heard them. They're the guys, the big uh, eyeball, the big eyeball masks, helmets on us. So you never actually have seen any of their faces, but uh, the the big eyeballs is their, their but the, the trademark. In, the inside baseball piece here is this band called Karumban that's playing on the thirtieth of this month. Um, they are a kind of a jam, mellow kind of electronic band that is blowing up i mean sold it's amazing being on this side watching how certain bands catch on and they they sold out two nights in the Fillmore immediately we picked up for some for some random reason on monday night uh or no sunday night we sold 49 tickets people just hear about this thing it's gonna blow up of a band that none of us have ever heard of right um, kind of like you know the the legend that somebody signed Jimi Hendrix to play at their uh, their high school prom, and then between when he signed that contract and the actual prom, he blows up, but he still has to show up and play yeah. the prom. That's so you're, you're the you're the we're prom, a little bit of you're that. like the prom of we're, uh, we're, we're we're we get a lot of what they call underplays where you've got a band like Washed Out, which is this guy that you know his hit. My kids all know him. He has forty million streams on his hit on his hit, and he'll play the barn. That's a super treat. Uh, you know, but he's doing a little bit of an underplay before he goes around and gets on the festival circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've we've created a niche, and then you know we just watch as people just enjoy wine and music together. We've always been about that part of the equation. Yeah. Like we've always been about the conversation that happens after the bottles open, and you sort of. Sn- Figured out what it tastes like. So we're talking about wine and fun and conversation. Can we talk about Gun Bun hijacking the Napa Valley wine train, please? Yes. <laughs> so uh, we have. So this was um, before my time at the winery. But my dad and his uh, his cohorts, the winemaker and the sales manager at the time, uh, loved. I mean, my dad's always been a hijinks guy, a, a joke player, honor. Um, and I'm a, I'm, I've grown up as maybe the butter honor because <laughs> I'm not, I didn't quite get that bug. Um, usually I'm just the butt of the joke. Uh, and so, but you know, and, and so for a minute there in the eighties that extended to the way that he promoted the winery and you know, when the Napa Valley wine train was, they were always doing posters. And uh, I used to laugh as I was trying to make sense of the business side of our winery, like shit, if we just Staying in the poster business, we would have been <laughs> successful because <laughs> the posters where everybody loved these posters. So you can't the say Gunlock Fun Two Good Virtue you're too drunk to drive. That's right, right exactly. Uh, you know, but so they were looking for kind of three dimensional ways to have fun. And when Napa Valley Wine Train was established, it was a major, it was a major hullabaloo. Like there was a lot of controversy. It was like it was it was like is this Disneyland on steroids? Um, and so you know, yes. <laughs> so they sensed. They sensed an opportunity, and uh, and at one of the stops, they they had this uh, group called the Sonoma Valley Wine Patrol. They always wore capes and masks, and they would, uh, you know, the, the train was rolling through, and they hopped on and just poured, uh, pour, made everyone pour out their Napa wine to pour on some pour out Sonoma <laughs> wine. 
Yeah. And, uh, another, another adventure they had was, um, and this one I was around for, and I, we, we got a couple other wineries involved when Richard Branson, when Vir- there was no Virgin America, it was Virgin Atlantic. And they had their first direct San Francisco, London service. They took a plane load of California, Northern California journalists to London for a week to wine them and dine them and travel writers to write about it. And then they did the same thing to San Francisco. Um, and we got wind through somebody we were working with that they were going to come to some winery in Napa that, God bless them, wasn't even like, wasn't even a worthwhile winery. <laughs> it was, I don't even know, somebody knew somebody who knew somebody. It wasn't, a, it wasn't, it was just one stop. Uh, and we got wind of that. And so... I think I know which one it was. <laughs> so we, we end up coming, the, the but that we set it up so that the bus... Um, you know, the, they were stopping at Domaine Carneros and at the end of the day, which is really, it's in Napa, but it's like two miles from our winery. And at the end of the day, you know, they'd done their tasting and they come back in and unbeknownst to them, our, our, one of our guys just got in the group of journalists and got on the bus with them. And no one, they were so drunk, they didn't even notice. So he, and, and Richard Branson's in the front with his mom. There's no bodyguards in those days. And, you know, and all we, the only person on the bus who knew what was going on was the driver. Richard Branson didn't know about it. His mother didn't know about it. And so what happened was as soon as it crossed the Napa border, we had hired a helicopter and stuck our sort of poet sales manager in it. And the helicopter descended on Napa and I had an old Jeep and the Jeep pulled in front of the bus. We're all in capes and we lead the Jeep, the the bus over to the to our winery. The helicopter lands and our, our drunk pontificating sales manager gets out and reads some like ode to virgins. We walk him through our cave. And you remember Attila, Bart? So Attila, we had one guy in our cell that was fitter than fuck. Like he was just a, and so we put him and the cutest girl in our, in our, on our crew in bubble baths, like twin bubble baths. And so they had to like, so they had to take their, 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 each of these journalists had to bless the virgins in the bubble baths. And so, yeah, it went, so those are the days, you know, uh, we haven't done anything like that. Uh, w- once I figured out we, we, we were selling more posters than wine, I started right. focusing on once wine. Once the FBI started watching, <laughs> like, you know. now you would go to jail immediately. Oh my gosh, it was. Uh, I think they actually, I, I think I read something that said they had a really good time. They, they they did, you know. They had a they definitely had a good time. Yeah, what's not to like? No, it was, it <laughs> helicopters, was, jeeps, girls in bathtubs, pouring me wine. It was, oh, it was, yeah. Sounds like Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's right. Insane. Shout out to Jasmine. <laughs> right. Oh, we're in so much trouble for that one. Yep. This is what happens when John goes away, yeah. <laughs> and it's also the second episode. Right. Well, Jeff, thank you for coming today. Um, we really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah we, uh, you know, we're lucky down there. We're, we're lucky here yeah. in Sonoma. Yeah, I mean, we, this we is a, we got this incredible rearview mirror we all have because we, we're part of a valley that's been at it for so long. Um, but we still sort of get to stay on the cutting edge. I was checking out that you had Morgan in here, and what's great is there's some of the best winemaking that's ever been done happening right now, yep. right in front of us. So we get to kind of watch it all. And I'm always a big believer that if you pay a little bit of attention to what happened yesterday, the things that happened today even make are a little in a little brighter color, you know, either because they're so rebellious or so different or they're managing to celebrate something that, holy shit, they think they're, we think they're revolutionary, but they know they're pulling from what they're, you know, what somebody did a hundred years ago and they're just doing it on their own way. Can I ask one more thing on, on that note? We're talking about yesterday. We're drinking this 1982 Kleinberger. 
Can we talk about Kleinberger a little bit? Yes. Oh, Ian, I'm so <laughs> glad the saw him ask the question. So here, here, I can't help it. I know this has gone on like way too long already, but I have to talk well, about Kleinberger. Well, so so this is a you know it now now in in, in it's so ironic that I'm old enough to be able to cite these cycles. Um, because I don't want to admit it, but what when I took over our family winery, we our wines were reaching. They had kind of peaked in terms of quali- qualitative potential. I believe they could be much better based on a couple of older vintages that really were doing well um, and showed signs of being truly great on a world scale. But then we had issues with bread, or we had issues with we're on a marginal site, so we could get a lot of herbaceousness. And I came in and wanted to get out of anything that we couldn't focus on and achieve sort of world-class greatness. And that meant that we pulled out Sylvaner, Riesling, Gamay, Beaujolais, all these varietals that would be super sexy that we could certainly right, sell a be lot. be such a hipster now. We, said, yeah, we could totally sell all that, but we pulled it out. So my, 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 my mandate was if, if, the, if an origin country can do this better and cheaper than what we're doing, then we're not going to do this. Yeah. I mean, we're going to own the Bordeaux, our Bordeaux heritage, which is sort of ironic given where we are, but that is our heritage. And because we do Pinot really well, we're going to stick to that. Um, but anything else that's on the, on the cusp of that, and, and for us, the only white wine other than Chardonnay that made the cut was Gewürztraminer. We pulled everything out, including this Kleinberger that my sister and my dad never let me forget because it's a – we had delicious. <laughs> Yeah. It's a it's an off it's an actual varietal, it, genetically speaking. It's a it's a cousin of a riesling. We had the only four yeah. acres of it in the state, and I pulled it out. Uh, and my my dad and my sister will never forgive me for it. But uh, <laughs> so now we're drinking. Ian pulled this out of his cellar, um, and it's a it's a super treasure. Like that's not only <laughs> well, this was my cellar via your cellar as of like six months ago. I'm sure. it, right, right. Uh, <laughs> but it's fun because it's got this. Like it's got that nice viscosity and it, it, you know, that's age. It's got some kind of built-in RS. Alcohol's eleven point six. Remember when you could get alcohols that low without Sam, how old were you in nineteen eighty two? Uh negative one. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I was uh I was a junior in high school. And probably would have been happy to drink a bottle of this uh, <laughs> on some back alley and with a day downtown. Exactly. In a, in a in a bathtub, in a bubble bath. Yeah, right. <laughs> Right. So or it's a, a cow trough. Yeah, it's Petaluma. It's Petaluma. <laughs> so we pull, uh, you know, we've been so focused on our on our core that, you know, we've got some late harvest Rieslings. There was a time where we were in the sort of experimentation, throw everything at the wall mode. And the, oh, lot, the whole, I mean, the whole industry in this yeah. town was. Well, and I think it's yeah. coming back now. You see, you know, like what Hardy Wallace is doing, you like just milking the shit out of stuff. And, and, and for another podcast, topic i would love you guys to talk or somebody to talk about the current definition of quality Hmm. because as i'm out selling wine that's a really interesting i I, I honestly think that the the definition is moving um and and so when you have all of a sudden winemakers really nibbing in the butt around all these edges of varietals that and and whose whose distinct whose whose inherent sort of their inherent value is how distinctive and unique they are which is a little bit independent from how actually good they are on the palate. Um, I'm noticing a change. Well said. In, in that, yeah. Yeah. Very, very well said. In that, uni- in that universe. And so, you know, it was because I was devoted to like, it better be in 100% or I'm getting the hell out of that varietal. And so versus now, it's almost like, well, you know, w- w- we could go back to doing some late harvest reverse demeanor because who the hell does a late harvest reverse demeanor? We could do, who else has 
50-year-old great Gewurztraminer vines and all this stuff. And we know we, we, to a certain extent, have to be a little bit trend-following, but um, our game is, at least while I'm here, sticking kind of to our guns. Um, but I'd love for you guys to tackle that. You, and, you and Thomas album. Jefferson would have got along. So in the last episode, I was I was talking about Kleinberger, and I was looking it up on the way here, and there was actually, I, I found a, a reference to Thomas Jefferson talking about Kleinberger, and he said that it was a shitty grape. <laughs> he was basically saying that Riesling was, was you know, the, the great grape of Germany and Kleinberger made insipid wines to quote, you know, a, a sideways yeah. reference. But I mean, this has got, it's ironic that this thing, this is just like the sort of the girl at the middle school dance that didn't get any, this wine we're drinking right here. That and, and no it, one danced with her in middle school, but she's turned into a hot supermodel now. She turned it's, into it's like, really tasty. So like, it's, it, like it, it's got this old, this wine that we're for, drinking for a, for a fucking 30. What, yeah. I'm bad at math. I mean, well, 35, 30 older than 36, 30 old, 30 older than us. It's sweet yeah. and um, viscous and rich. And I promise you it's, that it's really, it's, it's really good, but it wasn't quite that in its inception. <laughs> it probably wasn't me. And it happens to be the best year of, that was a great year. I mean, I imagine that when people, there wasn't any intent for these wines to be consumed 35, 36 years no. later. I mean, that wasn't the goal when this was made. This was. Jim uh, Bunchy was hoping it was all consumed before yes. the 83 came out. <laughs> Buy it, sell it. <laughs> I have the 83. It. We'll we'll drink that next time. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, this is the fact that it stayed in your cellar for 35 years probably helped this wine survive a lot. But, you know, it's uh, also a testament to a, a site. That yeah. you know produces age-worthy wines. I don't think it matters what variety there are. There's going to be acid. There's going to be structure. It's going right. to it's going to hold up. Yeah. Hey, kind of like the Bunchu family. A little <laughs> right. acidic by the, uh, by uh, the gray little, hairs of Archie. <laughs> they've held up. <laughs> well, how can people get a hold of uh, a your wine, but then b um, concert tickets? Yeah, concert tickets. I got so to see some of these shows. The, the epicenter for our universe is gunbun.com, G-U-N-B-U-N.com, and you'll find everything that you need there. Um, you know, whether you're visiting or you want to come to a concert or just want to learn about the winery. Um, we're pretty active on our social media feed. You know, you can find us on kind of all of them, except for Snapchat. Um, yet, uh, you know, so not in that uh, game quite yet. No, but um, you'd be a little late at this point. I, at that, yeah, well, I'm holding out for the next one. But uh, <laughs> I think it's Instagram stories, post Facebook. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But no, we love visitors. We uh, we pride ourselves on having our, our, our on creating experiences at the winery that can kind of meet your needs if you want to dive into some of these really low production, high density, expensive wines and a high touch. We've got a thing you can do at the winery or you can come hang out at our donkey bar and just sit by the glass or you can get a anything in between. Um, so we love all visitors and, uh, and, and we are available across the country, which is exciting considering how small we are. That's what Katie does almost. Their sister's like spends most of her life in an airplane flying to some other place that they're she, selling your wine. She's a, yeah, she, thank God she's doing it now. <laughs> uh, yeah, can we give a little shout out to uh, Abbott's Passage? Yeah, uh, yeah. My sister started this uh, little project called Abbott's Passage, which is co-fermented field blends from unique vineyards that, um, are, that are a little bit of that experimental thing we're talking about they're really good and they you know they're 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 uh you know you can tell i'm fairly militant about staying in our lane with gunlock bunchu um but abbott's passage is this great opportunity to kind of go deep and 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 without having to like make giant programs of it and just create great intense wines um and katie i'm not shy about saying has the best palate in our family by a long shot mm. um and so she's having a great time picking these vineyards out and making these wines. And, and so far, they're, they're, she's batting a 1,000. They're all great. Yeah. 
All right, Sam, let's uh, wrap it up. How are we getting a uh, hold of you and your uh, wines? Well, at 16600, 16 the word, 600 the number, uh, come visit us at the Tasting House, block off the plaza, find me on Twitter and Instagram, not Snapchat, at and Grapes with a View. I'm sort of excited uh, about your next Final Sunday. Oh, Final Sunday coming yeah. up. Uh, David Gans of the Grateful Dead Hour and Sirius XM's uh, Tales from the Golden Road. They'll actually be broadcasting live uh, on Sirius XM se- uh, Sunday, April 29th. And then we'll have, he'll, he'll play some songs. We got Mike the Baker. I'm going to bust out some of the, the new releases I'm sending out to the Phil Sent Me members this month. Um, Is this it'll be the fun Jam time. On station? Yeah, uh, the, the Grateful Dead, the Grateful okay, Dead channel so, on Sirius oh, XM. Sweet. Yeah, so live broadcast worldwide from... Uh, from 16600 World Headquarters in downtown yeah. Sonoma, California. Yeah. And Bart uh, selling a little Chenin Blanc on the road? So, uh, yeah, danesellers.com. We have a uh, June 21st winemaker dinner at Sweet D with oh, the folks. That from. menu looks fucking yeah. awesome. Yeah. She's How do you say that? Shawarma? Shawarma. May the shawarma, shawarma be with you. Some uh, paella <laughs> with seafood with the uh, Chenin Blanc. Yeah. And um, so we're looking forward to that. And... Uh, you know, I'm uh, dedicated full time to Dane Sellers now, so I'm out there uh, on the street. Newsletter coming out. Be on that mailing yeah. list. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to thank uh, those of you out there in uh, podcast land that uh, purely from listening to the podcast have bought some wine. And um, that's a really cool connection to make. And I really appreciate it. So, yeah, that's fun. Uh, yeah, Sam, you, we have a mutual customer now. And um, yeah, it's cool. So, thank you very much. Jeff Bunchu, thank you very much, uh, old yeah. friend. Um, a lot of good stories, and uh, you'll be back. Yeah, you'll I was going to say, we, uh, I, I actually got to ask half the questions that I wanted to ask. So hopefully, I, I feel like we got more sometime. questions now than when we started. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> Ian, I think, I Blessing. Think we, we also tricked Jeff into coming here today, though. So you got to, so you have to come <laughs> hey, up Jeff, with Jeff, come have some tacos. <laughs> so you have, to, here's a microphone. <laughs> so you have to come up with another story for next time. <laughs> the tacos are ready, by the but, way. I know. Tacos Bart made his tacos today. And hey, um, we're all going to be at HDR, Hospice to Roan. I don't know, Jeff, if you're going down for... No, no. Okay. The, um, Tempranillo is still not from the road. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're trying to squeeze that in there. The um, But all of us will be down there the Paso Robles, 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th, something like that. Um, recommend if you're a, a wine lover. If I mean, it doesn't matter even if you like Rhone wines. If you just like wines... Um, the Mid-State County... Mid-State Fairgrounds or something right It's there, right? Uh, four days of Rhone hedonism. Um, and we're going to try and, great. yeah, we're going to try and find a way to do a podcast from down there too. So, uh, Ian's in Ian's hotel room, I think is the way it's going to go. <laughs> I don't want to, we're going to talk about that. I don't know if I want to be in hotel <laughs> room. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you next week.